can turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17 again. John chapter 17. We'll be taking up where we left off last week. If you'll recall last week, we focused primarily in verse 14 on what it means to be sanctified and not of the world. And you'll recall our primary focus at that time was seeing how true sanctification, true holiness in light of Christ and His character is not merely abstinence. True sanctification is not merely avoiding that which is bad for the sake of some moral superiority, but it is a heart's attitude towards God and a love for God that is greater than anything else. And in some ways, we'll be continuing that theme today as we pick up in verse 15. But before we begin working through it, I will ask you to stand with me if you're able at this time for the reading of God's Word. And we'll read verses 15 through 19. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And now for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise to sanctify us by it. Lord, I ask that you would do that work here and now. Oh God, I know I am completely insufficient to the task apart from your mighty spirit. Lord, I ask that you would quicken us, that you would for your own glory, show us truth from your word. And not only that we might understand it, but that we might love the truth. And love Him who is truth. Oh God, I ask that this entire message would be according to Your Word. That You would guard me from saying false things, O Father. I ask that when I would speak rightly, that You would grant power and authority. Lord, that there would be a spirit-wrought liberty and unction from on high. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is, as I mentioned, very similar to last week, which was Sanctified Not of the World. In other words, the focus was what makes us different from the world. And last week, our primary thought was it is the desire of the Christian's heart which worked out practically produces a pursuit of goodness. And there is a living and observable obedience in light of that. And then here, I want to ask the question today, what for? Why has God left His people in the world and called us towards this holiness or sanctification? So the title today is Set Apart for God. We'll begin our thoughts looking at verse 15, the first part. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That expression really hit me in study and in thought this week 
Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And one of the reasons that that struck me the way that it did is because one of the most common attitudes that you'll hear amongst professing Christians as they look at the world around them, which frankly appears to continue to be getting worse and worse, their attitude is that they have a desire to escape out of the world. Is that not true? Even yourself, as you look around you and you see things progressively getting worse, do you think, man, I really would just like to escape all of this mess, all of this nonsense. It's funny for me, even as a, as a pastor, whenever people find out that you're a pastor, they, they, uh, their, their language changes. I met a man just this week and we talked for a little bit and then uh, and you would know him probably most of you, but then when he found out I was a pastor, his whole demeanor changed and he said, yeah, the world's really changing, isn't it? It's really getting different around here and their conversation tends to change when they find that out. But I've even heard not only Christian people or professing Christians that desire to escape out of the world, but even conservative-minded people or professing Christians that have talked about dreading having kids. I even have friends that have said, well, I don't really want to have kids. And I say, well, why not? And they say, well, you've seen the world around us. I mean, I don't want to bring a child into the world that's going to have to live in the world as it is now. And that's an attitude that people have as they view a progressively decaying culture. But Jesus prays here and says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And a lot of that are these legitimate attitudes to have. Is it appropriate for the Christian to have a mindset that says, I want to escape out of this fallen world? Is that all bad? Is that all wrong in light of what Jesus is saying here? Should Christians be constantly looking at the godless world we live in and longing to escape? I want to look with you just briefly to qualify this from Philippians chapter 1. Paul addresses this very subject, at least by way of implication, if not directly, in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says this, beginning in verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? I'm asking the question, is it wrong for a Christian to look at the world and say, I'm just ready to get out of here? Well, Paul says he's torn. He's torn between these two realities. He says, on the one hand, if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. That's better. Obviously better. To escape this world as it is now is better. And on the other hand, he's got this burden for the Philippians and other Christians he was currently ministering to. He didn't, didn't want to leave them as they were. As a parent, surely you get this. If you're a Christian, to go to be with Christ, what better could you ask for? What more could you want? And yet you think about your children and how much you love them and want to continue encouraging and leading and guiding and instructing them. There's a t- tornness about you. So it is certainly legitimate, biblically legitimate, for a Christian to desire to escape this wicked world. But if the Christian's longing desire to escape this world is merely to avoid suffering and misery with no real burden for the souls of other people in the world, let me suggest to you that it is a very short-sighted goal and inconsistent with what Jesus is saying. Even Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi, he told them, we just read there from chapter 1, he said that it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for Christ. And our constant thinking is to think any and all suffering is something to be avoided, to escape, to try to not have to deal with. And if I'm suffering, that must be because God's paying attention to me or He's just lost a grip on reality all of a sudden. Whenever Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I'm mentioning a lot about children today, and I believe one of the ways that we can measure this in ourselves is we just ask yourself this. What is your desire for your children? What do you desire for your kids? Young kids, grown kids, grandkids, what do you great grandkids? What do you desire for them? What do you want their life to turn out to be? In light of our text here today, would you prefer to focus or to see them prosper and grow either materially or financially? If you could have whatever you want for your children, would it be that they always be able to avoid and be shielded from every ounce of suffering and difficulty? Do you suppose that you love them more than God loves his children of whom Jesus is praying in our text? Jesus prays. I do not ask that you take them out of this fallen, corrupt, wicked, evil, oppressive world. I'm not asking you to remove them from the world. And they're going to suffer as they're in the world. What is our attitude towards our kids? Surely, it is appropriate and right for us to desire our children to be safe, to be responsible, to prosper in the world. Surely, that must be appropriate and right. And yet... If your little child or grandchild were to tell you that because of their love for Jesus Christ that they were going today to the most dangerous country on earth to preach the gospel and probably die, what would you think of that? How does that align with your burden for your children? And not just your children. I'm trying to demonstrate something about what Jesus is saying here in our own attitude towards what our purpose really is. In the world. 
And I suggest to you that if we don't have this right, we will not be able to have the attitude with Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a victorious and confident expectation expressed there. To live is Christ. If I'm living, I'm proclaiming Him. I'm serving Him. Whatever His purpose for me in the world. But to die is to gain. To go on and be with Him. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why not? Why not take them out of the world? This is the question. He's been praying concerning us being not of the world and being sanctified. He's going on to specifically deal with that. And yet, in light of that, don't take them out of the world. Why not? Well, before then, just look briefly at the second part of verse 15. He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but while they're in the world... Protect, keep them from the evil one. You see, to live in this world as a Christian is to live under the threat of the evil one. To live under the threat of the God of this world. And you realize, even though your soul is secure if you're in Christ and cannot be lost, if the devil was an idle threat, Jesus would not have prayed this here. You understand, Jesus, if the devil couldn't do anything to disrupt your life, or cause you difficulty or harm, Jesus would not have prayed this. But as it is, He says that the Father would keep Christians, keep His disciples, keep you and I from the evil. There will be opposition in the world because of this evil one. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does that mean? In a lot of Jesus' words, He's praying, keep them from the evil one as they're left in this world. The schemes of the devil. And not just the devil. You understand, He's not omnipresent. He can't be all places at once. And yet, the angels who fell with Him, the demons, the minions of the devil, and the devil himself are constantly railing against those who belong to Christ. Seeking to lead them away from Christ. And in light of these texts, to live ignorantly of the devil and his demons is to give place to the devil. Peter says, be watchful, be sober-minded, be aware that this enemy of your soul is doing things around you in order to try to do something. Jesus is praying, keep them from him. He's at work against you. Now, Jesus does not pray, and this is fascinating, isn't it? Jesus does not pray that we would be completely shielded from the attacks of the evil. You notice that? Jesus had all power and authority. Why didn't He just pray here in John 17, Father, keep them from coming under any suffering or difficulty by the evil one. It's not what He prays. He prays, keep them from the evil one. Interesting. What does he mean when he says, keep them from the evil one? Well, if we just look at our immediate context in John 17, where we've been, that's been kind of a repeated theme. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus prays and says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, 
which I which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So in a lot of those verses, I believe it's very appropriate that we understand Jesus here in verse 15 when he says that you keep them from the evil one. That's exactly what he's talking about. You see, he's praying that we would not be finally and ultimately lost. He says, when I was with them, I kept them. When he was with the disciples, he guarded and kept them from being taken away by the devil. Save one. Save the son of destruction. The, the scriptures be fulfilled in Judas betrayal. And now he's about to leave them and he's praying, Father, keep them, protect them. And that ought to give you great confidence as one who Jesus has prayed that the Father not take you out of the world, but though you remain in the world, you're going to face the hatred of the devil and opposition of the world that you, if you're in Christ, are being kept and guarded from devilish tribulation. There is certainty in his prayer that you will not be lost. Verse 16 of John 17, he goes on and he says this. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Have you heard that somewhere before? Well, yes, you did last week in verse 14. An exact restatement. Verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because... They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then now in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Why do you suppose Jesus repeats this? Do you reckon that's an ancient typo? Why do you think that exact statement is repeated in that way? Well, I believe there are a couple of reasons. The first reason I would suggest is to reiterate that that which distinguishes us from the world is to be according to Jesus Himself. What do I mean? He said they're not of the world. They're different from the world. And then he's, now He says again, they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, He is making it very clear to you that if the world hates you because you're some kind of weirdo or because you're arrogant or cruel, there's no benefit in that. He's reiterating the fact that that in you, which the world should find intolerable, is Christ Himself. That they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. It's, it's relational. It's, it's connected to Him and His person. But if the world hates you because of Christ, and Christ in you, and your love for Christ, do not be discouraged. That's the first reason. The second reason why I believe Christ reiterates this is to clarify for us what He had just said in verse 15. So here's the picture. Verse 14, He says, they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Then He says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So they're in the world. And now He makes it plain as possibly can be that though they're still in the world, that they are distinguished from the world. They're not of the world. Yes, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. And while I believe that this is a legitimate prayer that Jesus offered to the Father, Jesus, think of this, Jesus did not need to utter this prayer audibly, did He? He didn't need to say this out loud. 
Jesus could have just simply thought this and it would have been no less significant or effectual. The father would have known exactly all of his burdens and desires without this audible expression. This expression, I believe, is in part for our benefit and encouragement. And so the second reason for this repeated expression and perhaps the primary reason is to clarify the reason that Jesus did not pray for us to be taken out of the world. Why? Why not? Why does Jesus say don't take them out of the world? It's so that that which makes us different from the world would remain evident. That there would be a, an evident difference. Imagine this. If every time God saves someone, they just vanished immediately and did not continue on as His witness in the world and as a living testimony of the power of God in them. It's part of God's purpose that those He does this saving work in would be evidence to those around them of God's power and goodness. A testimony of God's faithfulness. I believe that is the primary reason for this distinction. And here's my point. That a Christianity which looks just like the world is worse than useless. Worse than useless. I made this point last week as well, but it bears repeating that there are many people within professing Christianity today that they think the way to reach the lost world is by being as much like the world as you possibly can. be. We're going to incorporate their style of music. We're going to incorporate their dress, their style of television and their language and all of these things. We're going to be so much like them that they'll listen to us. They'll think, well, they really must be like me and worth listening to. Jesus is saying, no, no, my purpose is that you remain in the world, but that you're different while you're there, that there is a distinction between you and them. If your idea of a good church is to take all of the common enjoyments of the world and incorporate them in the worship, then you do not have the mind of Christ, which is evident in our text. And this isn't just in the context of the church, but ask yourself this question of your own life. Personal application here. Is your life characterized by the same types of hobbies, interests, and focuses as unbelievers? Are you one, whenever you measure those in your life around you, when you get together, do you have as much excitement and priority in your life to enjoy the exact same things that they're enjoying? If you say that you do and yet you love Christ, let me suggest that you are on shaky ground. Our interests are not to be consumed by the carnal attractions of the world. I'm repeatedly reminded of the picture that we're given in Pilgrim's Progress of Christian and faithful passing through Vanity Fair. You know what's fascinating about that telling, that story? John Bunyan, our figure for tonight, is that Christian in, in the story, it's not so much that they're going around condemning all the folks in Vanity Fair for what they're doing, not initially. They're just refusing to be absorbed and consumed by the same lusts. What infuriates the folks in Vanity Fair is that these people will not love the sin that they love. That we're to be distinct and different in this way and not have our affections captured by the same things of those in the world. One illustration of this from Hebrews chapter 11 is Moses. 
It says, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Isn't that something? Moses, the scriptures telling us he chose rather to suffer affliction and mistreatment than the fleeting pleasures of sin for the sake of Christ, what Christ had promised for him. There's a greater love than those carnal fading attractions that the world is so ready to offer us. And I suspect that many professing Christians today would be prepared to argue at this point, why can't we have both? What's wrong with enjoying the harmless benefits of the world's goods and professing Christ at the same time? Why did Moses have to choose between Egypt and the people of God? Why did he have to do that? Why must you choose between the world's goods and Christ? Jesus says they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look with me for a moment at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 begins moving us in the direction we need to go as far as why it's so important that we not love the things of the world. Here's why. Beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what kind of king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my Decide to be of the world and have your affections controlled by the things of the world means that you are not a disciple of Christ. You cannot have Christ as your greatest treasure and the world at the same time. There must be this distinction. It's important that we see this. And in keeping with our thoughts from last week, even in that text, the distinction from the world is not some legalistic division on the basis of moral preference. In Jesus' words in Luke 14, it's an exceeding, a far more exceeding love for Christ Himself than anything else. He's not telling you literally go and hate your family. But He's saying if your love for your family isn't by comparison able to be described as hatred, in other words, you cannot love anything more than Him. You must renounce it all and say, this Jesus is my sole commitment and attachment. This is the one. You must love Him. 
Do not love the world or the things of the world. You must be distinct. The next question, the next logical question we've got to ask is this. How are you supposed to know the difference? How can you know the difference between that which is of the world? We've read from last week the desires of the the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. We saw these desires from within us that give birth to all sorts of wickedness and sin. But who gets to decide what that standard is? Who gets to tell you? Is what I'm saying we all just need to figure out what's good, what's of Christ, and live that way and make ourselves the standard for what evil is in the world? No. And Jesus moves immediately into that in the next verse, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The context of the kind of sanctification that Jesus is describing and praying for is to be understood as that which sets us apart and makes us different from the world. He's saying sanctify them in the truth. In other words, that which should make you different from the world is according to the truth of His Word. The objective truth of His Word. And you've got to say that today. Because we live in an age of pluralism. Pluralism. The great boast of our day is that we can all just coexist. And it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you tolerate one another. As a matter of fact, the only people that will not be tolerated are those who are intolerant of evil. Those who hold up the standard of God's Word are the ones that are considered intolerable. And the ones not to be tolerated. And this pluralistic relativism is just as prevalent in Christian or supposed Christian groups as it is in the world. People will argue that as long as you profess some attachment to Jesus, then you are to be accepted and celebrated as a Christian. And let me tell you, and I don't say this with any desire to cause any separation, even in this community, but even here to suggest that it really matters what you actually believe is to pretty much commit ecumenical suicide. You understand what I'm saying? That there are a large number of religious people, even in this town, that if you begin using language that's exception, that says (coughs) Christianity is exclusive and you must believe certain doctrinal truths to know God, you must be connected to Christ in a living way, well, you might as well Expect that you're going to be opposed if you begin using that kind of language. You'll be ostracized as a legalist and a fanatic with unwarranted and judgmental zeal. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And our standard for identifying what that truth is, is his word. And we must be committed to this. We must be. Those who are not Christians are supposed to be made distinct from those who are because of the Christian's commitment to the truth of the Bible. Now, I want to be fair. I want to recognize that there is a tendency amongst professing Christians and other kinds of religious folks who will claim a spiritual superiority over other Christians. There is the reality that they will present their own supposed knowledge of truth as authoritative. They'll say we have the truth and no one else does. The problem is, and one way you always know when folks do that that they're wrong is there's a kind of Gnosticism that goes with it. 
You know what Gnosticism is? Gnostic, Gnosis, special knowledge. It's a secret knowledge. It's the idea that the truth, well, the only way you can have it is if I give it to you and I've got a direct line with God that you don't have. And so I tell you what truth is and I become the authority. That's essentially Gnosticism in a nutshell. And the problem is that there are people out there that will present themselves as having exclusive truth, but it's not limited to this book. It goes beyond the scriptures and they claim authority for themselves. The Bible never gives them. That's not at all what I'm calling for. It's not what Jesus is saying. The truth he's referring to is that which can be examined and understood according to the scriptures. And it's available to everyone. With no authoritative interpreter except the Holy Spirit of God. You follow what I'm saying? That the truth Jesus is saying sanctifies that which ought to separate and distinguish Christians from non-Christians is the truth of the Scriptures which is open to all of you. And the only interpretative authority you need is the Holy Spirit of God. Not any man. But in order to be sanctified and set apart from the world by the truth of God's word, you must study and know his word. You must know his word. If his word is that which is supposed to distinguish you from the world. And too often we develop our own convictions, my own preferences. I think this is how a church service should go. And if people don't do it the way I like, well, I'm going somewhere else. That kind of an attitude people adopt. With no basis in the scriptures. They make themselves the authority. That which distinguishes us is not personal preference. It is a commitment to the truth of his word. And our own experiences can never become the final authority for truth. Never. Now notice I did not say that our experiences are not important in the way that God communicates truth to us. If the Spirit of God erupts in your heart and gives you an understanding of the Word, that is an experience. And it's important. But your experience is never the authority for truth. If you think that it is, it is wicked idolatry and presumption. True Christianity is definable. And it's not according to secret knowledge. It is submitted to and set apart by the plain and objective truth of Scripture. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. The question we ask is, what for? Why is it that we're to be sanctified and made different from the world? Verse 18 tells us, Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So not only did Jesus make it clear in our opening verse 15 today that He's not asking the Father to take us out of the world, but here He specifically says that He intends for us to be in it. He has sent us into the world. And rather than promoting a kind of terrified and defeated posture amongst Christians who face opposition in the world, who say, what are we going to do? The society is getting worse and worse. What hope is there for us? We ought to see we're exactly where Jesus wants us to be. You face opposition out those doors. That's precisely where your Lord and King wants you. And he has a purpose in it. And your primary purpose in the world is not to restructure society. It is so that you as a Christian might be distinct in a wicked society. That God would demonstrate his power in you. 
And that's going to look like a lot of different things. It may look like you standing firm in your convictions, even on a political level. It could look like that. But the point is that you as a Christian are not primarily concerned with restructuring the world, but for being a witness to God in a fallen world. He says, I have sent them into the world. And that really, the reason I say that is because he qualifies it. Jesus tells us that his reason for sending us into the world is directly related to the reason that the Father sent him into the world. There's a direct parallel. And so if you want to know, why does the Lord have me in the world still? Here's the answer. Why did Jesus come into the world? If you want to know why the Father, why Christ still has you in the world, it's going to be immediately related to why Jesus originally came into the world. Three primary scriptures to consider on this very note, all from John. First, John four, nine in this. The love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So why did Jesus, why is he sent into the world so that we might have life? We might live through him. Why is Jesus sent us into the world so that others might have life through him? There's a direct parallel. The next text, John three, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Second purpose, the same purpose as we saw in the last scripture. Jesus was sent into the world to save the world through himself. Jesus has sent you and I into the world that others might be saved that are in the world. In 1 John 4, 14, he says, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior. Of the world. You see the mission. The purpose of the church in the world. Is only ever going to be properly understood. In light of Jesus mission. And purpose in the world. And the way in which you and I are meant to carry it out. Is not by being conformed to the world. And neither is it by getting the world to be conformed to us. It's that we who have been given life from above. Would live amongst them. And they would see through our character and our testimony. Jesus. So they would be saved. You see, our purpose, it would be very easy for you to hear me saying, be different from the world in order so that they can see how good you are and how bad they are. That's not what the scripture is teaching you. That's not what it's saying. There's a purpose, a saving purpose. And yes, part of that salvation is going to come through their own recognition of their sin and their conviction before God. But God's purpose, Christ's purpose for you in the world is Intimately connected with his mission to save his people. And that cannot be separated from our being sanctified as we live in it. It's interesting. You know, I read that passage to you from Luke 14 earlier where Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you have any other love greater than me, essentially. That's a paraphrase, a summary of what Jesus said. And the very next scripture, Jesus says from Luke 14, the next two verses at the end of that, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Is that an odd thing for Jesus to say after saying you cannot be my disciple unless you renounce all that you have? 
And then he starts talking about salt. Starts talking about the usefulness of salt. I believe this is the connection we're supposed to see in that. That our ability as Christians to declare the gospel of Christ in the world. That's the purpose of salt. To have a preserving effect. To be able to to increase and benefit that which it's applied to. If you remove the saltiness, then it can no longer do that. If the, the distinctions in the church are removed. If we're just like the world, we lose our saltiness. We lose our ability to impact the world, to preserve the world. Now we know it's an illustration and all illustrations fail at some point. It's not ultimately we ourselves that preserve other people. It's not you and I who save other people. It's Christ. But he uses us. He uses us even as salt would be used to the same end of preserving our ability to declare this gospel in light of our definition of true holiness, true sanctification from the heart. This is the the message is that our ability to declare the gospel to others will be intimately related to you and I having an unadulterated and sanctified and holy love for Christ himself. That is what should set you apart in the world. That you love Him more than anything else. That He is your driving passion. We consider from the Sunday school, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, the famous expression that he uses, that he says he disciplines himself towards this godliness so that he himself would not become disqualified having preached to others. You go and read that context, you know what he's essentially saying there? He's essentially saying that He's become all things to all men. He's To those under the law, He's become as one under the law. To those who were Jews, He's become as a Jew. That He's lived according to those He's around for the sake of the advance of the Gospel. In other words, He's saying, I'm not going to hold on to anything in my life, sinful or otherwise, that would be a stumbling block to others. That would keep them from Christ. I love Him more than all. He is my end. He's all that I want. That's why the same Paul can say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why is that? He loved him. He loved him more than anything. And I I repeat and maintain that if we want to fulfill God's purpose for us as his people in the world, we ought to be those who are committing to knowing the Christ of this book and loving him. Supremely, supremely. And the next thing to ask is, what is it that equips us for this high call? It's a challenging truth. You know, it's interesting. Jesus makes the expression in verse 14. He says, they are not of the world. That's a reality. He doesn't say, I mentioned this last week. He doesn't say that they will not be of the world. He says they are not of the world. They are of God. They are of the Father, of me. They're not of the world. That's true. Absolutely true. And then he goes on to pray for them and for us for an ongoing work. Sanctify them in the truth. But I believe it's important for us to, to, grasp, to grasp this next verse 19 in order to help us to see what grounds we have for being this gospel witness. He says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now I ask, 
What gives you the right to proclaim objective truth to other people and call them to repentance and faith in light of your own guilt and sin? How on earth can I stand before men knowing my own sin and tell you, call you towards these high things when I myself ultimately don't measure up? What's the grounds for this? What is it that we're saying without being hypocrites? What is it ultimately that sanctifies us? Jesus says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now, here's an interesting thought. What is Jesus saying? Do you have any idea? The word he uses, consecrate, that's the exact same word as sanctified from the root of holy. Jesus is saying, I sanctify myself. What is he talking about? What does he mean? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. And this is as central a thought as you will take away from here today. Hebrews chapter 10. Why was it necessary that Christ sanctify or consecrate Himself? And what does it have to do with yours and my ability to proclaim this glorious gospel to others? Hebrews chapter 10. Just buckle up and listen for just a moment. I'm going to read 18 verses for you, but don't lose your focus here. Don't drift off. This is the foundation of all Christianity right here. Pay close attention. He says, for since the law, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But listen, but when Christ had offered once for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the grounds that we have. This is what truly and indeed does sanctify us is the finished work of Christ. 
You see, in the Old Testament system, those priests, they had to go and make an act, a sacrifice for themselves before they could offer any for anyone else. Do you know why that is? Because they could not offer sacrifices because of their own guilt. And if they're going to represent the people, they have to first be clean. Jesus has consecrated himself. He set himself apart. And even by his own blood, he's been sanctified in order that we who are united to him might also be sanctified. That Jesus, our high priest, has declared for all time, our sins have been removed by him in his blood. All those bulls, all those goats, all those sacrifices were always only ever a shadow of that which was to come. Never actually able to take away sin. Only Jesus Christ. The once for all offering of Christ is the grounds for our sanctification. And you say, what does that have to do with my ability to proclaim the truth to the world? Because I go to the world not as a self-righteous hypocrite who says, be like me. But I say, I'm just like you. And apart from this Jesus, I would be no better. And I deserve the judgment and wrath of God in hell forever. But Jesus came. What for? To suffer under the wrath of his father that you and I both deserve. And the growth that I have, the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God. I'm not better than anyone, but I'm pursuing him who has apprehended me, Paul argues. The one who shed his blood once for all for my soul. And that there is an intimate relationship between his sanctifying work on our behalf. And our ability and burden and desire as those who are set apart in the world to proclaim this message. Here's my closing thought today for you. Are you being sanctified in the way Jesus describes here? Do you see that it is by the very design of God that we are existing in the world in which we live? And I, as I mentioned before, I have zero interest, none whatsoever, of picking fights and causing division amongst different religious people in this town and community or even the world. But I'll tell you this, if we're not convinced of the truth of this book and don't stand according to it, then the distinctions between us and the world are just going to slowly fade into nothing. And we'll lose any and all ability to communicate truth to them. You know, in that vein, I feel compelled just to share with you a, a uh, illustration of sorts of this, of what exactly I mean. Lord knows I have no desire to say anything of this nature. But I was talking with someone here, some actually a couple years ago, someone who was a Methodist, and they were talking about their concerns about the Methodist Church and allowing homosexuals to be their ministers. They were deeply concerned. And they told me, they said, I can't go there with them. This was a practicing Methodist. And I said, you know, the trouble with that is, and Bruce and I talked a little bit about this at the park the other day, the trouble with that is that you've already given up the ground of the authority of the Word. You've already disregarded the Scriptures that says that women are not to be in offices of authority over men. What grounds and authority do you have to tell the world and those who are seeking to influence the church that they're wrong? Or that what they're saying cannot be done? 
without being a hypocrite yourself. If we're not being sanctified by the authoritative truth of God's word, we lose our effective witness in the world. And there's only two options. We're either going to be committed to the truth of this book by the grace of God to the best of our abilities, or we're going to be on that slow downward fall away from any significant relevance whatsoever. My encouragement to you is to look to Christ to see the once for all sacrifice of sins that He has offered up for you and be saved. That's what we're going to remember in a moment with the Lord's Supper. What He accomplished on our behalf as our High Priest by His own blood. I pray if you don't know Him, you would repent and trust in Him. Trust in Him with all your heart. And that if you do know Him, let the glory and majesty of what He's done on the cross for you be the thing that compels you to continue chasing after Him, pursuing Him and your growth in the Christian life. So with that, I will go ahead and ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your mercy to us. Father, thank You that Though our own righteousness is not enough, it never could be, that your son's is, that his blood speaks a better word for us than all our sin, and that there is salvation in him and redemption, and we can know and love you. Father, I pray you'd continue working in us by your word, that you would lead and direct us into all truth according to all that you have said. Lord, grow us in our love for you. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be a true and living communion of fellowship around your table as we gather now. In Jesus' name, amen.